think about how much he loves us, it ought to bring us uh, to a place of awe and wonder. Uh, We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church as the army of ankle biters makes their way to the fellowship hall. Uh, I did want to remind everyone next Sunday on Palm Sunday, immediately following Sunday morning service, uh, we will have an Easter egg hunt for the kids, uh, zero through uh, fifth grade, uh, can hunt Easter eggs. Uh, we're going to try our best to uh, divide them up ages so that, uh, so that kids like, uh, like Nicholas doesn't take all the, uh, all the Easter eggs from all the little ones because uh, he's just mean and will do that. Uh, uh, if you brought Easter eggs, there's a box in the back. You can drop those off. If you did not get a chance to get to the store uh, but would like to bring them, we will be collecting them all this week. Uh, we're hoping to have uh, a million Easter eggs so that every kid gets to have as many Easter eggs as he possibly can carry in his basket. Uh, so that'll be next Sunday. We're excited about that. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, as I look around uh, the congregation this morning, uh, my, beginning, uh, my beginning illustration uh, may go over some of, uh, some of your head because uh, of your ages. Uh, how many of you were alive during the Exxon Valdez oil spill? And, and the entire front section, the entire front section's hands are, are, are not raised. Uh, uh, this morning's message is, is talking about the irony of the king. And, and irony is, is a very, it's very interesting. And, and, and we see it all over uh, in our world. Uh, well, when the Exxon Valdez, uh, it was an oil tanker uh, that had an oil spill uh, up near Alaska. And it spilled, it, it spilled 80 I'm sorry, spilled 10.8 million gallons of oil into the ocean. Uh, the oil spill uh, spanned about 1,300 square miles. Uh, that's a big area. Uh, one, of the, one of the initiatives for uh, Exxon was they had to mitigate this oil spill. They had to figure out a way that they could that they could clean up the oil spill. They had to figure out a way to make this oil spill not as impactful for the environment because, after all, you know, we live in a world where, uh, where you know, PETA is, is constantly uh, uh, peppering these, these uh, oil companies about uh, their impact on the environment. And whenever you have something like the BP oil spill, uh, they have a heyday. And so, so one of the things that, that Exxon did was, was say, you know what? We're going to do our very best to clean up after, after this giant oil spill. And so they began cleaning up the wildlife. I mean, they, they hired thousands and thousands of people uh, to go and to find these birds and these seals and, and all this wildlife that was affected by this oil spill and clean them up. Well, it was later published that it cost them about $80,000 per seal that they cleaned up. And so they, they had this, this big ceremony. They, they, they you know, captured all of these seals that were affected uh, in, the, in the ocean that were affected by this oil spill. And they hired all these people and they cleaned them up. And then they had this big ceremony 
they had this big ceremony where they released these seals out into the ocean so that they could be free again. And ironically enough, they paid $80,000 per seal, and shortly thereafter releasing these seals, these seals were attacked by, by killer whales. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if, if, if this really happened. I wasn't there. Uh, but but they, there was, this, there was this, this report that, you know, they, Exxon went through all this trouble and all of this expense to clean up these seals and release them out into the ocean. And shortly after they're released, they're attacked by killer, killer whales and eaten. Now, you know, the, the, the positive of that is the killer whales got a nice clean meal. You know, otherwise they would have had a nice oily meal. But that, that is the definition of irony. It is the definition of ironic. And this morning we're going to look at the irony associated with Jesus' crucifixion. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read verse 27 through verse 37. Matthew chapter 27, verse, chapter 27, 27 through 37. <clears throat> then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe upon him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat upon him. And they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, took his robe off, put his garments back upon him, led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. Sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they placed above his head a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus the King of the Jews. Let's pray. God, as we read this passage, may we see the irony of His mockery. May You speak to our hearts. May we see ourselves in this passage. As Jesus is clearly identified in Scripture as the King, yet we fail to honor Him as King in our lives. Lord, may You speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray this morning that as you leave here this morning that you will see clearly the deity of Jesus. Before we jump into the text, I want to make sure that we understand the timeline of events. We have spent the last six to eight weeks on the last week of Jesus' life. And so I want to back up for just a few moments 
and, and make sure we understand the timeline of events. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday. And so we're going to begin, as, as I walk through the timeline of events in Jesus' life, we're going, the, the last week of Jesus' life, we're going to begin with Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday was the Sunday before Passover. Palm Sunday uh, commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, a donkey that had never been ridden, and the, the people of Israel... Uh, the children of Israel lay palm branches in front of him as a symbol that, that we believe that this is our Messiah. We believe that this is the Messiah who has come to deliver Israel. And so Sunday, Palm Sunday, commemorates that Sunday as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. As soon as he enters into Jerusalem, Jesus makes a beeline for the temple. As he gets to the temple, he drives out, he overturns the table and drives out the money changers from the temple courts. And so that is Sunday. On Monday, Jesus begins teaching. He immediately goes back to Jerusalem and is teaching the multitudes and he is confronting the Pharisees and he is confronting the Sadducees. And that is Matthew chapter uh, 24, 25 uh, is Jesus' teaching. We have the, the parable of the barren fig tree, the parable of the two sons. Uh, we have uh, lots of teachings of Jesus on Monday. On Tuesday... Jesus leaves Jerusalem and travels a short distance to a city outside of Jerusalem called Bethany, which was where the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha were. And it is there that Jesus is anointed. That, that, that's where the alabaster jar of perfume is shattered and Jesus' is, Jesus is feet is anointed. And, and we have this whole episode where Judas says we could have sold this for for a lot of money and fed the poor and Jesus said the poor you will always have with me but me you only have for a short period of time that's on Tuesday on Wednesday we have no recorded events in any of the gospels of Jesus's life on that Wednesday on Thursday is the day of preparation understanding that that at sundown uh, the Passover would begin we understand that that Thursday was the day of preparation. They would begin to prepare the Passover meal. They would begin to prepare the Seder feast. Uh, they couldn't go to Walmart. They couldn't go to Costco. Uh, so they had to make preparation. And so this is the day of preparation. This is Thursday. On Thursday, we see the washing of the disciples' feet, followed by the Last Supper, followed by Jesus. Uh, Judas leaves early. Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's that, that, that whole episode where Jesus prays, as comes back, his disciples are asleep. Jesus prays, as come back, he comes back, his disciples are asleep. Jesus prays, he comes back, his disciples are asleep. And then he has entered, uh, he, is, uh, he entertains the Roman, le the Roman legion or the Roman cohort along with Caiaphas, along with uh, the elders, along with Judas, and he is betrayed. Thursday night, Jesus, Thursday night, early Friday morning, in the wee hours of the morning, Jesus stands trial before Annas. Thursday, I'm sorry, Friday morning, Jesus stands trial before Caiaphas. Early, early Saturday, early, early Friday morning, Jesus stands trial before Pilate for the first time. Jesus is then dismissed from Pilate, saying this is a Jewish issue, not a Roman issue. Jesus goes before Herod. This is still Friday morning. Jesus is sent back from Herod, back to Pilate, and this is where this is the trial that we looked at last week, where Pilate eventually says, look, 
I don't find any guilt in this man. Maybe I can give to them Barabbas and maybe they will take Barabbas instead of this Jesus. They said, give us Barabbas. We want to crucify Jesus. So this is Friday morning, probably somewhere around 9, 10 o'clock somewhere where Pilate finally acquiesces to the crowd, acquiesces to the the Jewish leaders and, and pronounces the capital sentence upon Jesus. This is where we pick up. Somewhere around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning. Everybody clear with, with the timeline? Everybody understands what's taking place over these last weeks. Now, I want to point out that the overriding theme throughout the crucifixion of Jesus is this theme of Jesus as the king. Remember the accusations brought before him, before Pilate? Pilate looks at him and asks him the question, is it true that you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, those aren't my words, Pilate. Those are your words. It is as you say. It is is your words, not mine. And as Jesus, and we'll, we'll look at this today, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the placard above him reads, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And as they mock him, they mock him as king. There is a consistency of theme in the crucifixion of Jesus as the king. And I want us to point out that none of Jesus' peers, none of his disciples, none of the Pharisees, none of the Sadducees, none of the Sanhedrin, none of the Roman officials, none of the, the, the Roman legion or the Roman cohort, none of them saw Jesus as king. Why not? Because if we look at the life of Jesus, it did not look like a king. Jesus was poor. He was a peasant. Jesus had a a meager following. He had somewhere between probably 50 to 100 loyal disciples at the end of his life. He had spent three years in ministry. He He had cured the sick. He had healed the lame, he had fed the thousands, he had cast out demons, he had walked on water, he had calmed the storm, and he had amassed all of about a hundred followers. This was not royalty. He had no military. He had no army which he could call at his beck and call. He had no army, he had no military that, that he could send out and dispatch at his behest. Not only did he have no military, he had no palace. He was homeless. The scripture says that that he had no place to lay his head. It did not look like a king. Yet, the irony of it is, Jesus is not poor. Jesus is the owner of all things. Jesus is not poor. The irony of it is that Jesus did not have a meager following, but that Jesus ultimately would have the greatest following, the largest following of any king ever in the history of humanity. The reality is is that Jesus, not only did he have an army, But he had the most powerful army in all of history. The scripture tells us that he had at his his beck and call, he had a legion of 
angels to come down and minister to him and to serve on his behalf that that at the very at the very at the very at, at, at his fingertips at his beck and call at at any time that Christ could call down the army not of this earth but the army of heaven to come and battle on his behalf the irony of it is that while he had no place on this earth to lay his head that he would reside in heaven, in the glory of, of, of the creation, and that he left his palace to come down and inhabit this earth, and he left the glory of the kingdom of God to come and inhabit this earth, and he would return to his palace in the glory of God. And so the irony of it is his peers were completely unaware of his deity, completely unaware of his authority. I want to point out something to us that is oftentimes missed and misunderstood. Jesus is the creator. Go with me if you will real quick. John chapter 1 verse 3. The scripture tells us in John chapter 1 verse 3. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. They're, they're, they're real short. Uh, but I want you to see this. In the beginning, John chapter 1, John begins the same way that uh, Moses begins the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, verse 3, all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus was the Creator. Jesus was the King who created. You say, well, preacher, I thought God the Father created. Genesis chapter 1, I want to read to you very, very quickly, and I want you to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. See, preacher? God the Father created. Well, let's look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. How did God create? He created through the spoken word. God said, let there be light, and it was. If you look at verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate waters from waters. How did God create water? God said, let there be water, the spoken word. And if you look at verse 9, it said, God said, let the waters below be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. If you look at verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation. If you look at verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. If you look at verse 7, um, sorry, uh, verse 24, and then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Do you see a common theme? How did God create? He created through the spoken word. Let's go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And if you skip down to verse 14, it said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, all things that were made were made by him, and nothing that was made was made apart from him. Who was the means of creation? Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, if you don't like the way John says it, let's look at the way Paul says it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says it like this, that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being. It means that Jesus is, by order of importance, preeminent. Jesus is the first. He is the preeminent of all creation. That, that there is no created being that is of higher order than Jesus because Jesus is the creator. Look at what he says. He says that following this, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in heaven 
and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So every king, every government, every spiritual force was created by him and is subject to him. To whom? Jesus. God the Father is absolutely the creator, but he uses Jesus as his means of creation. So, let's go back to our text. Jesus stands before Pilate, and he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Well, yeah, I mean, I am the king of the Jews. But the reality was, is not, not only is Jesus the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Greeks, he's the king of the Romans, he's the king of the Gentiles, he's the king of all the earth, he's the king of every deity, he is the king of every false god, he is the king of every, every government, every municipality, because Jesus is the king and the creator of all things, and all things are subject to him and subject to his authority. And so as Jesus is arrested, Jesus is brought before Pilate. He's sentenced to die. They arrest him, and they bring him to crucify him. And I want us to look at the text, and I want us to see the irony. In Matthew chapter 27, the scripture tells us, Verse 27, the soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. So there's about 600 Roman soldiers gathered around Jesus. And what do they do? They strip him naked. They place it upon his head. They place a robe upon him. They weave a crown of thorns and they place it upon his head and they put a scepter in his hand. And you can, you can see this in your mind's eye. This, this, this cohort, the 600 men gathered around this, this one soldier who has been, been beaten and bloodied. And they, they place this scarlet robe and they, they weave this crown. And then they, they mock him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they bow down before him. And then they get up and they spit upon him. And they, take the, the, they grab the reed, the scepter out of his hand. And they begin beating him. And they begin been punching him. And, and the other text tells us that they pull out his beard in the, in the other gospels. And they just, they mangle him. And they mock him as what? As king. Do you see the irony? In just a few short hours, Jesus will die... In just a few days, he will raise again as king of all the universe, and here he will do so for their sin, and here they are mocking him as the king. The irony is palpable. Jesus is before all things. Jesus will remain. Hebrews chapter 13, 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm chapter 72 tells us that all kings and all authority will bow before him. Philippians chapter 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The irony is that as they bow before him in mockery, there's coming a day where they will bow before him in complete, in complete submission to him as king. Now here's the question that I have for us, church. As they mock him, as they put a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns, and a scepter in his hand, they mock him because they don't think that he's really king. <laughs> How can this poor peasant claim to be a king? Because he certainly doesn't look like a king. He certainly doesn't act like a king. And so here's the question I have. We gather here every Sunday morning to worship Jesus. There are people in, in churches, in villages, in houses, all across this world who gather together for the sole purpose of worshiping Jesus as King. And we worship Him as King, and we stand, to stand up here and we sing, Oh, how He loves, and we sing, You are welcome in this place, and we sing, Come and, 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 and rule my life, I submit my life to You, I worship You, I serve You, and we sing these songs. And we walk out the door, and we live our lives not as if Jesus is king, but as if we are king. If you can't say amen, maybe you got to say ouch. Do we not? Whenever we walk out the door on Sunday morning, and we begin our week on Monday, we begin our week not, how can I serve Jesus? How can I honor Him as King? How can I honor Him as Lord of my life? But we begin our week on Monday saying, how can I maximize my pleasure? How can I maximize my enjoyment? How can I make my life better? How can I make more money? How can I spend more time with my family? How can I spend more time doing what I want because we live in a hedonistic society. We live in a society that teaches us and that tells us if you are not striving for your own enjoyment, striving for your own pleasure, and striving to please yourself, if you are not looking out for number one, then you're not doing it right. And Jesus says, Jesus tells us in, our, in, in his scripture, he says in Mark chapter 8, he says everyone who seeks to save his own life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count it all, all loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ as my Savior, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I don't consider my life in any account dear to myself, in order that I, but I, I surrender it in order that I might finish the race that God has set before me to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. But that's not how we live our lives. We live our lives so that we can please ourselves. We worship Jesus as king, and then we live our lives as if we are king. Is that not the exact same things that the Roman soldiers were doing as they mocked Jesus as king? Do we not mock him as king with our own lives? You say, hail Jesus, you're my king but I'm going to live my life as if I am king. We come to worship him as king and we live our lives as if we are king. We serve Jesus when it's convenient for us. We submit to Jesus as our king 
so long as it doesn't upset the balance of my life, so long as it doesn't cause me to sacrifice too much. But we give to the king, so long as it doesn't upset my retirement, so long as it doesn't jeopardize my 401k, so long as it doesn't affect my day-to-day life, so long as I can still go to Chili's and I can still uh, you know, go to the mall and I can still uh, do whatever I want. We, we, we give to Jesus. We pray so long as it's convenient. We serve so long as it's convenient. We say with the crowd, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet, when Good Friday comes, and it's not what we expected, we yell, crucify him. That's not my king. I want you to flip to the book of Acts chapter 2. I want us to see something very plain and very clear. I've heard many testimonies. Many people will make this statement, and maybe you've made this statement. Maybe you've heard someone make this statement that say something to the effect of, well, whenever I was 7, 8, 10, I prayed and I asked Jesus to come into my life. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But it wasn't until I was 23 or 25 that I made Jesus the Lord of my life and I surrendered to Him. And, and, and so, you know, so now I know that, that I'm going to heaven. Has anybody ever heard somebody give that testimony? Maybe that's your testimony. I want to point something out to you in Scripture. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. In Peter's first sermon that he preaches, he says this. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who made Jesus Lord? God, let's, let's, let, let's look at the text. I, I, I want to make sure we're all, we're all on the same page. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want us to understand that Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord are interconnected. That they are woven together. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without having him as your Lord. And newsflash, church, You didn't make him Savior and Lord. He's not Savior and Lord because one day you looked up at heaven and you said, okay, I'll let you be king. I'll let you be my Savior. You can't make Jesus Lord because God has already done it. Acts chapter 2 tells us that God had made him both Lord and Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow before Jesus, not because of something you have done, But in Acts chapter 2, verse 8, it's because of what Jesus has done. Because he was humbly obedient to the cross, therefore God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. God has placed him in that position. God has made him creator. God has made him king. God has made him savior. Our role is to see him as king and to bow before him. 
What's interesting, as we come to Jesus with nothing. We come to Jesus with nothing but our sin. We can offer Him nothing. He needs nothing. He does not need our relationship with us. He does not need our service. There was an old Baptist hymn several years ago, God just needs a few good men. I love the Baptist. I love the hymns. But that's just wrong. God doesn't need a few good men. He's got a legion of an army of angels at His behest. He doesn't need me. By His grace and His mercy, He chooses to use broken vessels. He chooses to use sinners. We come to Jesus, and the only thing we bring is our sin. And we recognize Him for who He is as King of kings and Lord of lords from everlasting to everlasting, the owner of all things, in authority of all things. And here's the beauty of the Gospel. That King who stands as King of kings and Lord of lords with all authority and all power and all might and all everything loved us, loved you, loved me so much that He left His kingdom, He left glory, and He put on humanity. And not only did He put on humanity, but He took upon Himself your sin and my sin. And as He hung upon the cross, and as He's being beaten and mocked as the King, He is taking their own mockery upon Himself. And as they hang Him upon, as they hang him upon the cross, He will cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he will say, it is finished. It is paid in full. Because the king left glory and put on sin and died your death. That's the gospel. And the message of the gospel is this. All we have to do is submit to him as king. Yes, you are Lord. Have mercy upon me. And Jesus tells us that all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. So, as we close this morning, I want us to understand the irony in the message. The irony in the mockery, the irony in the crucifixion. That they mocked Jesus as king, yet he was king. And the king became our savior. He became our payment. And he rose victorious as king forever and he will reign victorious as king forever and he's coming back as king so church as we close let me ask this question and i ask this not because i don't know the answer but because i want you to ponder the answer is jesus king if the answer is yes, and we've seen clearly from Scripture that the answer is yes, you must submit to Him as King. Let's pray.